Good morning, Christ City. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors, and it is a pleasure to be with you all. I wish you all well on this Mother's Day. It's so uh, good to be with you all, albeit virtually. Um, some of our band members, as Matthew mentioned, some of our band members were together in person on Friday for our night of praise, and that, along with our backyard Easter watch parties last month, they've really been whetting my appetite for being together in person. And as we mentioned earlier, we'll, we'll have more uh, backyard watch parties. We're, we're planning some more uh, this month uh, and then next month as well as we continue to figure out the lay of the land and what's possible and what's responsible and what is prudent for regathering in person. So stay tuned for more news on that. Uh, this week I was uh, driving in my car. I, I don't remember where I was driving, but I, I, here's, here's the story. Spotify has this playlist called Release Radar which highlights new releases. It's based on your likes and your listening history. It's always a very interesting mix because my wife, Caroline, will also use the account at home, and we also have kids now. So one artist that found its way in there was Coco Melon. For those who don't know, Coco Melon is a kid's brand that does nursery rhymes and kid's songs, um, which is it's to understate their status a little bit. Uh, because as of last summer, Coco Melon was the most viewed YouTube channel in the United States and the second most viewed channel in the world. The first most viewed channel was also a kid's channel, which is not a surprise to any parent or anyone who spends much time with kids. That is actually an aside though. One of the songs on my release radar playlist I actually listened to was by singer-songwriter Matt Carney. It's a song called Say It Now. And one of the lines goes, I keep staring at three dots on my phone. Want to know your thoughts before they're gone. Okay, I keep staring at three dots on my phone. Want to know your thoughts before they're gone. And, and, and that stuck with me because I thought that song wouldn't make any sense if it had been written 15 years ago. Right? Now, now we know, most of us, even if we don't have a smartphone, what those three dots mean. Right? It means the other person is writing a message back. But, and, and this is all still going on in my head as I'm driving, but I was thinking, what if in 15 years or 15 years from now, the ellipsis in a speech bubble, it doesn't mean that anymore? What if that's no longer a thing? Well, then we'd have to explain to folks in the next generation what this old song meant, right? And the further away from something you get, the more foreign it seems, the more explanation and context is needed, like cassette tapes and VHS and Blockbuster, and dial-up internet, and blowing on video game cartridges to make them work, and so on, and so on. The same can be true of Scripture, because the Bible is written in a language we can read, and hopefully it's translated to use verbiage or imagery we can understand. Sometimes we can forget that the events of the Bible, the scenarios in the Bible, are from hundreds of years ago and from cultures vastly different from ours. As, we were, as, as we've been reminded, in the Bible seminar these last few weeks, and as Andrea said last Sunday, it's important to know what the words we read in Scripture meant for their original hearers to then figure out what they might mean for us. We have just started a series called Be Free. Be Free. We're studying the Apostle Paul's letter in the first century, 2,000 years ago, to the churches in Galatia, which was a region in modern-day Turkey, in what is now Turkey. 
Last, last Sunday, Andreas set the stage. Paul was writing to a group of house churches in that region that he had helped plant because there were apparently some folks coming in and presenting a different take on the gospel, or what he called a different gospel, or no gospel at all. Namely, that you still needed to follow the law of Moses, which Jews had considered authoritative for hundreds of years. After all, Jesus was a Jew who mostly observed the law of Moses. He was a rabbi. And most of Jesus' early followers were Jews who would have also mostly observed the law of Moses. And what Paul is encountering is the accusation, and we learn this from, from reading into sort of one, his side of the letter, what Paul is encountering is the accusation that he's splintering off from the Jesus movement, that he has no authority to be considered a leader or a preacher of the gospel, that what he is saying is not sanctioned by those who knew Jesus best. After all, Paul didn't know Jesus personally, did he? He wasn't one of the original disciples. So on what grounds is he saying these things? And this is where we find ourselves in chapter 2 of the letter. Paul writes this in Galatians 2, verse 2. He says, I went to Jerusalem because of a revelation. There's a subtweet there, not because I was summoned. And I laid out the gospel that I preached to the Gentiles for them. And he's referring to the leaders of the Jerusalem church. So James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter, Jesus' right-hand man, that were named in the first chapter. And Paul goes on, he says, But I did it privately with these influential leaders to make sure that I wouldn't be working or that I hadn't worked for nothing. Now Paul is trying to walk a fine line here. He's trying to show that he isn't separate from the apostles in Jerusalem, which is sort of like the church headquarters, while he's also trying to show that he isn't subordinate to the apostles in Jerusalem, that he has his own commission as an apostle that stems from his own encounter with the Lord. A dramatic revelation on the road to Damascus, which you can read about in the book of Acts, chapter 9. Paul wanted to make sure that he and the other leaders, the Jerusalem leaders, they were all on the same page because he knew that his own influence and authority as a preacher of Jesus' good news would be undermined if he was too divergent from the message of Jesus' first followers and Jesus' family. James was Jesus' brother. So in verse 3, we get more context to what's going on. He writes, However, not even Titus, who was with me and who was a Greek, was required to be circumcised. Okay? Circumcision is one of the concepts in the New Testament, like dial-up internet for us, that requires some contextual conversion for us. Because circumcision was one of the biggest areas of controversy in the early church. Circumcision was a practice that went all the way back to Genesis, the very first book of the Hebrew Bible, and to Abraham himself, the forefather of the faith. Circumcision was the act prescribed by God in Genesis 17 as a sign of God's covenant, God's promise. God said to Abraham, this is my covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Circumcise every male on the eighth day after they are born. Any uncircumcised male whose flesh of his foreskin remains uncircumcised will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That was, of course, a patriarchal practice because it only applied to males, those who had foreskins because they were and they would become the heads of households. In, patriarch in patriarchal societies, women and girls belonged to their fathers or their husbands. But it was a practice 
that faithful Jews had been and have been observing for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. After all, God did say, this is what you and your descendants must do. No qualifications, no ifs, ands, or buts. Circumcision means you're in, no circumcision means you're out. Jesus was circumcised. He was a faithful Jew. Those who converted to Judaism were circumcised. This is how we know we are in. And so it is no surprise that, as we read in Acts 15, there were those who said that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom we've received from Moses, you can't be saved. This is how we know. It was about identity. It was about community. It was about belonging. And what was at stake here in Paul's visit to Jerusalem was whether he, as a missionary and preacher of the good news to the Gentiles, that is, Gentiles or non-Jews, whether when they became Jesus followers, whether he needed to convert them fully, that is, have them become observant Jews, that is, follow the law of Moses, that is, get circumcised. This is so significant for the early church, although for us, you know, we can skip past this, or we can roll our eyes or wonder, what does this have to do with us, or why are we talking so much about some outdated patriarchal practice? Well, I believe that if it's important to know what was going on then and how they dealt with it so that we might see and hear what God may have for us today. Or in the phraseology of our series, seeing how freeing and liberating and challenging the good news of Jesus Christ is in that setting. It might help us see how freeing and liberating and challenging the good news of Jesus Christ is in our setting. What happens in these first 10 verses of chapter 2 is this. Ultimately, neither the leaders of the Jerusalem church, nor Paul and Barnabas, none of them listened to those who were advocating for Gentile circumcision. Paul calls those, that, that crew, he calls them false brothers and sisters. He calls them even spies. Not even Titus, who was a Greek, was required to be circumcised. Instead, they all agreed that the message they are all preaching, the Jerusalem church largely to Jews and Paul and Barnabas largely to non-Jews, it's the same one. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul writes, James, Peter, and John shook hands with me and Barnabas as equals. As equals. It was agreed that we would go to the Gentiles. And the Greek phrase here is, is literally translated, the people of the foreskin. That's what Gentiles is translated as in Greek. While they, the Jerusalem leaders, would continue to go to the people who were circumcised. They asked only that we would make provision for the poor, which was certainly something I was willing to do. They only asked that we would make provision for the poor, which was certainly something I was willing to do. And though I, I, I can't spend much time drawing this out today, let us not ignore the centrality and the commonality of this compassionate and just work. Economic justice is not an add-on to the gospel. Amen. Here in Galatians, Paul describes the decision to move forward together between parties that might have splintered, a decision to counter the claim that Gentile men had to be circumcised in order to be saved and fully accepted into the Jesus movement. In other words, the leaders agreed circumcision was not a salvation issue. And what happens here is, is what I would describe as a compromise. Now, there are different ways to understand that word. It, it does have negative connotations, doesn't it? One definition is to accept standards that are lower than desirable, right? 
To be caught in a compromising situation, not good. To compromise one's ethics or self, not good. To compromise on your morals or your standards, not good. But in relationship, in community, in politics, there is a compromise between people that is defined as settling a dispute by mutual concession. Settling a dispute by mutual concession. In wedding homilies, I will sometimes talk about the importance of compromise, a word that comes from the Latin, com promittere, meaning to promise together, to send forth together, a decision to stay in relationship and make progress, even if it is not exactly or entirely what either person or party wants. And yet it can be often, I would suggest, a way that is greater than the sum of its parts. Last month, we collaborated on a Good Friday service with five other DC churches and organizations, Peace Fellowship, Resurrection City, Washington Community Fellowship, Capitol Hill Church of God of Prophecy, and DC Unity and Justice. I hope you were able to catch it. It was such a beautiful expression of the breadth and diversity of God's kingdom. But even in planning and even behind the scenes, there were conversations about whether we could hold together across differences, stylistic, cultural, theological. There were moments I wasn't sure we would. And there would have been no hard feelings if folks had chosen not to participate. But by the grace of God and the move of the Spirit, I was able to say that night that we were undoubtedly different in some ways, but all aligned on the goodness of Jesus Christ and His gospel. And what we experienced was something greater than the sum of our parts. Some of, those same some of those same dynamics hold true within our church, within Christ City. There are differences, stylistic, cultural, theological. There are preferences and proclivities and preaching styles that differ among us. And, and wherever possible, we try to demonstrate that unity amidst diversity through our preachers and worship leaders and volunteers on screen, both guests and those within our body. And the ways we try to provide avenues for involvement and participation and engagement in our church and in our neighborhoods. We are Christ City Church. You are Christ City Church. We promise together, we compromise by how we participate and engage. We send forth together, we compromise by how we edify and encourage one another and hold together. As a multiracial, multiethnic, multigenerational church, as a church that seeks to bridge human-made divides, however imperfectly we try, we compromise to stay in relationship and make progress, even if it is not exactly or entirely what any one person or party wants, even me. And yet it is often, I believe, a way that is greater than the sum of its parts. And yet, I'm sure we all know that agreeing to something in principle does not always work out that way in practice, right? We, we know that in our efforts, even here, to better reflect the kingdom of God at Christ City, we know it's a stumbling journey. We know there's progress and setback. There's growth and blunder. There's maturation, and there are ingrained, internalized isms. We've all grown up in broken systems. Dysfunctional family dynamics, imperfect or even abusive churches and church leaders, a culture and a country that is shot through with the sins of racism and white normativity and patriarchy and misogyny and homophobia and xenophobia and vast economic inequality all the while in this country extolling the very noble but very aspirational title of, appropriately for our series, The Land of the Free. 
We all breathe polluted air. We bring all of that baggage with us, all of that background with us. To practice what we preach is not always easy, not least because of the pervasiveness of sin, of that which separates us from God and from others, and that pervasiveness, that sin is all around us, and it is even in our own lives. That has always been true, even for Jesus' closest disciples. See, right after that agreement, right after the shaking of hands, after confirming you know, everyone's on the same page and on the same team, Paul writes about how he had to confront Peter because Peter was not practicing what he had preached. So at some point, Peter visits the church in Antioch, which is Paul and Barnabas' home church, a church which we know from the book of Acts is a multi-ethnic church. It's made up of Jews and non-Jews. And here's what happened next, according to Paul, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Paul says earlier, before certain persons had come from James in Jerusalem, Peter regularly ate with the non-Jews. But when that conservative group came from Jerusalem, he cautiously pulled back and he he put as much distance as he could manage between himself and his non-Jewish friends. That's how fearful he was of the conservative Jewish clique that's been pushing this old system of circumcision. Unfortunately, Paul writes, the rest of the Jews in the Antioch church joined in that hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was swept along in the charade. Barnabas, one of the church leaders, But when I saw that they weren't acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of everyone, you're a Jew, but you've been living like a Gentile. How can you then force Gentiles to act like Jews? What he's talking about is another centuries-old concept called commensality, commensality or table fellowship. In those days and in that culture, To eat with someone was to say, in essence, I'm with you and you're with me. I'm one of you and you're one of us. Again, it was about identity and it was about belonging. You may recall that Jesus got in trouble because of who he ate with. Tax collectors and sinners, considered morally unclean and therefore inappropriate for a rabbi to be consorting with. And similarly, for Jews and Gentiles to eat together as they were in the Antioch church, that would have been a matter of concern for non-Christian Jews because non-Jews were considered to be of a different social status, people outside, outside of the people of God, and of a different moral standing, being uncircumcised sinners apart from the law of Moses. And this was clearly a matter of concern, not just for some non-Christian Jews, but for some Jewish Christians. The same folks who were saying that Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved, in order to be clean. Because, as we heard, this was a custom they'd been undertaking for a long, long time. Now, from Peter's perspective, he may have just not been trying to rock the boat, right? Some folks are visiting from headquarters, the church in Jerusalem, and they're a bit more conservative, so I'm just going to cater to their preferences a little bit. It's just for a short time. But what was actually happening was something more significant. In the words of a New Testament scholar who happens to be my dad, he writes, By denying table fellowship to Gentile Christians, Peter was in effect declaring them to be second-class citizens. With the implication that the only way they could become first-class citizens was to go the whole way of the proselyte and accept circumcision. In the final analysis then, 
Circumcision could be required as a precondition for social contact only if it was first a requirement for salvation. And thus, Peter's conduct not only immediately threatened the church's unity, but in the long run compromised the very basis of that unity. And because Peter was a leader in the church, others followed his example, leading to the rest of the Jewish Christians, even Barnabas, one of the Antioch church's leaders, giving up table fellowship with their Gentile siblings and resulting in a segregated and separated church. Jewish Christians eating together and non-Jewish Christians left out. There are so many parallel examples in American church history. Folks who were afraid to offend white slave owners or men in positions of leadership or those who refused to see and treat queer folk as fully human and as equals. And we have found ourselves with segregated and separated churches, with folks of color and women and our LGBTQ siblings left out and left to fend for themselves. Now, thanks be to God that the Spirit works all things for good. Thanks be to God that the Spirit is always bringing life out of death. Thanks be to God that we have seen such beautiful and resilient truth and creativity and hope from the black church and from immigrant churches and from feminist and womanist and liberation theologians, from queer Christians. Thanks be to God that new tables are being built and gathered around. God always finds a way to redeem our places of hurt And at the same time, let us not paint over those situations of injustice and inequity and sin with a rose-colored hue. God's heart breaks whenever we treat one another as less than human. God's heart breaks whenever we fail to empathize with one another's plight, particularly those, as we see throughout Scripture, those whose dignity has been most ground down, those who have had barriers placed between them and full liberation or between them and relationship with God. You can know God, but you have to be like this first. You, know, you can know God, but you, can, you, you have to do this first. Now, there, there are situations where we compromise, where we promise together. We find a path forward together, even if it is not exactly as we want. And there are situations where our convictions lead us to challenge and even confront in love and humility for who among us has not been in the wrong, friends, fellow pilgrims, and even leaders who are not only adding requirements to the gospel of grace by faith in Jesus, thereby excluding those from our tables that Jesus would have us welcome, but in so doing are leading others astray as well. Just as Paul confronted and challenged Peter. Last summer, I discovered that I'm actually an Enneagram 9 after 10 years, 10 plus years of typing as a 2. Now, if you're not familiar with the Enneagram, that's okay. The important thing to know is that I really hate conflict. That any conflict feels like the worst thing in the world, and my first inclination is to run from it. Now, God has been doing a work in me through my marriage, through my friendships, through uh, this church, through our staff. Um, to enable me to sit in conflict long enough to see and draw out the beauty that can be found there. Because we are to one another preachers of the good news. 
We are to one another iron sharpening iron. We are to one another pilgrims on a journey with Christ and toward Christ's likeness. And when one of us falls down, others are there to help him up. Now, honestly, honestly, what, what Paul did to Peter makes me cringe. Calling someone out in front of everyone is not how I would do it and not how I would prefer that it would be done. And there have absolutely been times when I should have spoken up more loudly and publicly, and I did not. Let me be clear, though. This is not a blanket affirmation that public confrontation is always the way to go. Uh, Jesus, in Matthew 18, gives us an example of not going straight to DEFCON 1. But what we can see here is that sometimes it is necessary. Sometimes when practice does not match principle, when actions do not match words, when our preferences lead to exclusion, Something needs to be said. The words have been said among us at Christ City Church. Words both public and private. Words in conversations and via email. Words hard to hear, but good and right. That have led us to this place of being firm in our commitment to gender equality and racial equity and queer inclusion as examples of the gospel in practice. And I know that words will continue to be said as the Spirit leads, as we continue embodying that kingdom welcome in our actions, in our practices, and in our culture. Here's the thing. It's not compromise or conviction. It's both. Paul did not just agree with Peter in Jerusalem, nor did he just publicly dress him down. Both took place, and both took place in relationship. And this understanding led to Peter's correction and clarity. As he shared at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, that debate as to whether Gentile Christians had to be circumcised, he said this in words that echo Paul's here in Galatians 2. Peter said to the gathered church, fellow believers, you know that early on God chose me from among you as the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and come to believe. Now, was this shade towards Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles? Who knows? But anyway, Peter says, God who knows people's deepest thoughts and desires, confirmed this by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no no distinction between us and them. Paul wrote, God shows no partiality, but purified their deepest thoughts and desires through faith. Why then are you now challenging God by placing a burden on the shoulders of these disciples that neither we nor our ancestors could bear? On the contrary, we believe that we and they are saved in the same way by the grace of the Lord Jesus. I'll compare that to Paul's words in Galatians 2. We know very well that we are not set right with God by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Continuing on in Acts 15, the entire assembly fell quiet as they then listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God did among the Gentiles through their activity. When Barnabas and Paul also fell silent, James, the brother of Jesus, James from whom those those other uh, false brothers apparently came, or at least claiming to come in his name, James said, fellow believers, listen to me. Simon Peter reported how in his kindness God came to the Gentiles in the first place to raise up from them a people of God. Therefore, I conclude that we shouldn't create problems for Gentiles who turn to God. What we're left with then is the gospel. 
good news of new life right now, of right standing with God and relationship with God that is available to us all through faith in Jesus. What we're left with is freedom through grace. You don't have to earn God's approval or anyone's for that matter. You don't have to prove that you have value or worth or dignity. You already have it, thanks be to God. As Paul wrote in verses that I memorized long ago as a kid, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That means you are loved by God. What we've heard this morning, it can seem like a story from long, long ago and far, far away, but it is so deeply personal. I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship where you felt like you had to walk on eggshells the whole time, but let me tell you, there is an incredible beauty and lightness and freedom in being truly loved, in being welcomed as you are, in being seen and known. That's what Paul's talking about here. In Christ, we are finally found, and there is no need to struggle and strain and self-medicate. In Christ, because of Christ, you can know that you are loved by God. I want you to receive that and hold it. Bask in it with every ache of your tired bones, with every fiber of your yearning being, with every ragged and snatched breath into your lungs. You are loved. And because of the grace of God, that is enough. God loves you. And God invites us to help others know that God loves them as well. Not just in a philosophical or theological sense, but tangibly, practically, materially, emotionally, through word and deed in our friendships, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in this church. When we engage in works of justice and works of compassion, we are making a world in which people know that God loves them. When we participate in advocacy and activism, we are making a world in which people know that God loves them in quiet conversations and public challenges, in incremental progress towards seemingly impossible goals, in patience and perseverance, empathy in grace, in speaking out and in holding our tongues. The freedom of Christ, the freedom of the cross, is the freedom of love. The good news, as Paul wrote in another letter, is that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus, our Lord. For freedom, we have been set free.